At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. As we kick off the new year, we invite you to tune into our current series, The Forgotten Virtue, Learning to Love Again, where we'll discover how God defines love, Christ personifies love, and the Spirit empowers us to love one another. Together, we'll experience healing and hope in the love God designed for us, a love we carry through every season of life. Well, we're in uh, 1 John 5, 1 through 5 this morning. I'm going to read our passage and pray, and then we'll jump in and study it together. So this is what God's Word says. It says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. By this, we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Would you pray with me? Lord, as we turn to study your word together, we pray once again that you would come and by your Spirit impact our lives. You've already been moving in this place in such great ways, and we're so thankful for that. But come now and move by the preaching of your word. Stir our hearts, our minds, our hands, that we might love you more and serve you more, that we might be more satisfied in you. Above all things, would you point us towards Jesus, who is the full revelation of you, God. Move now, we ask, your holy and precious name. Amen. Uh, A couple years ago, I was uh, sitting in the drive-thru of Burger King, and I was really excited to try a, a new item that they had on the menu. I had been seeing advertisements for it for several months, and I'm a little bit of a fast food junkie, um, which my wife can attest to, and so I was, I was super excited because they had this new, uh, this new item. It was called the Impossible Whopper. I don't know if you remembered it, but uh, there, there was a lot of advertisements about these claims that the Impossible Whopper was essentially a vegetable burger that was supposed to taste just like a Whopper. And like anyone, I was naturally a little bit suspicious that somehow something that was plant-based could taste as good as meat. I am a carnivore at heart, so I apologize to any vegans or vegetarians in the room. Don't judge me too harshly, please. But I was super excited to try this item. And so I was waiting in line, finally got to the drive-thru, ordered it, got it in my bag, went to, pulled it out, unwrapped it, and it did. It looked just like a Whopper. It had all the things. It had the bun and the lettuce and the tomato and mayonnaise and all the stuff that I love about a Whopper. And then I bit into it, and almost immediately my heart sank. (laughs) It was close, but it was not quite a Whopper. I don't know if it was the lingering taste of beans in my mouth afterwards. I don't know if it was the texture. I'm not sure what it was, but it wasn't quite the same. And what I realized was, even though there was all this promise around the Whopper, and even though it looked like it, and maybe for a moment it smelled like it, the Impossible Whopper was missing one key ingredient. Meat. For the last several weeks, we've been studying through this book of 1 John, being challenged about the virtue of love, and that we are called and really pursuing to learn how to love again. And you know, love is one of those things that in our culture is very commonplace. We talk about love, we post about love, we celebrate love, right? Even next Sunday, we have a whole day dedicated to love and selling you stuff in the name of love. 
The Beatles famously sang that all you need is love. Love is very common in the culture around us. We see it and we celebrate it all the time. But if John was to look at love in our culture, and he was to examine the way we pursue love and what we root love in and what it's based on, He would say it might look like love, it might smell like love, it might seem like love, but it's actually missing a really key ingredient. What is it? Well, for John, it's a new spiritual birth. Look at 1 John 4, verse 7. It's kind of the controlling call that John gives us that we've been kind of unpacking over the last several weeks. This is what he says in 1 John 4, 7. He says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. As John has been calling us to the way of love and to learning to love again, what he reminds us of is the reason we're called to love is because if we've been born of God, then we will love. John actually throughout his letter in many places touches on the reality that new spiritual birth or being born again is a key ingredient to the way in which we love. In fact, it's a key ingredient to our entire spiritual lives. This isn't an idea that's just new in John. This is actually an idea that John got from Jesus. Jesus taught that in order for us to actually live the way God desires for us and to be part of his kingdom, we must be born again. You actually see this in Jesus' teaching in John chapter 3. In John's gospel, he recounts the story of when one night a ruler of Israel, a man named Nicodemus, who was part of the Jewish Sanhedrin, came to Jesus. This is actually what it says in John chapter 3. It says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night. He didn't want anyone to know that he was meeting with Jesus at the time and said to him, Rabbi, We know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now Nicodemus answers probably like most of us would in that situation. How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus responds, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. What Jesus says to Nicodemus and what we see repeated throughout the teaching of Scripture is that if we are to genuinely engage and enter into God's kingdom, we must experience spiritual rebirth. John then applies this reality and teaching of Jesus to say, if we are truly to learn to be a people marked by love, then there is a key ingredient that we must have. We must have spiritual rebirth. We are to be born of God if we are to experience both God's love and live that love out in our lives. That's why from 1 John 4, verse 7, the last couple weeks, we've unpacked that he goes to the place where he essentially reminds us that God is love. So part of the reason that we see in our call to love is because God is love, and those that are born of God will love. 
But not only is God love, God makes a way in which we can experience that love. And last week we looked at 1 John 4, 13 through 21, where John essentially encourages us that when we believe in Jesus, when you put your faith in him, you experience the love of God in such a way that it transforms you from the inside out. You become his child. You know that love down deep in you. You experience spiritual rebirth. You see, for John, it's not that love produces spiritual rebirth. We don't love to be reborn. We are reborn. And because of that, we then are called to love. Any love that does not result from spiritual rebirth is not genuine love because it's not rooted and connected with a God who is love. It might look like love. It might smell like love but it's missing the key ingredient. And John knows this, and it's why, as he kind of comes back again, as he closes this section of his teaching, he wants to call us and remind us of what spiritual rebirth is. He wants us to not only know that we've been born again, he wants us to be assured of it. Because the reality and nature of spiritual rebirth is it's not so easily noticeable, right? It's not like you wear a check mark on your sleeve that says, like, been born again. I can't just look out over the crowd here or look at the posts online and think, like, well, they're born again, they're not born. Like, that's not the nature of it. So, so how do we know if it's a spiritual rebirth? How do we actually know that we've been born again? Is it just an experience? Is it just a decision that I make? If it's such a key ingredient to love, how do I know that I've experienced this spiritual rebirth? Well, John actually writes us that we writes to us to help us be assured of our spiritual rebirth. In fact, in John 5:13, he says, one of the purposes for his letters is I write these things so that you know that you have eternal life so that you can be assured. And so if we are to really learn to love in the way we've been calling and challenging ourselves to over the last five weeks, at some point we must come back and ask the question, have I experienced the new birth of God? And how can I be assured of it? Well, John in this passage gives us three ways that we can be assured of our spiritual rebirth. You see the first one come right away in verse One, he says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. For John, if you've been born of God, you believe in Jesus. The first way we know that we've been born again is that we currently have a present faith in Jesus. For John, it's in Jesus as the Christ, that he is the Messiah, the promised one of God who would come to reestablish God's kingdom, to save God's people from the enemies of Satan, sin, and death, and establish God's kingdom and remake the world new again. Not only is Jesus the Christ, he's been born of God, he's begotten of God, he is the Son of God. Not that Jesus was born at some point, that is not the point that John is making, but more that he is intimately connected with God and has the very nature of God. For John, if we have faith in Jesus and who he says he is, the Son of God, anointed King, Savior, 
if we have faith in him and who he is and what he's done, then we have been born of God. John writes this letter in some ways to challenge a church that was being infiltrated by false teaching. By teachers that were coming and saying, it's Jesus and it's these other things. In fact, one of the teachers that many think John was writing against was a man named Serenthus. And Serenthus taught that Jesus was not fully God and fully man. That Jesus was born a man and then at his baptism, he received a partial nature of God for a time, but then that nature left Jesus before he went to the cross and that Jesus died only as a human. That's why John labors throughout this letter in so many places to draw attention to the fact that Jesus is both fully God and fully man, that he's begotten of God, that he came in the flesh, that he is the Son of God, that he is the Savior, because he wants to remind us that part of how we know we have faith in Christ is that we're actually trusting in the Jesus that's revealed in the Scripture, the true Jesus in who God says he is and who he claimed to be. And so he continues to point his audience back to say, is this the Jesus that you're trusting in? in. You know, we likewise in our day have many people who come and try to give us distortions of who Jesus really is, of what he is really about. That he was a great teacher, but he wasn't really God. Or that he's not exclusive, that you don't really have to believe in Jesus to experience new birth. In fact, one of the leading teachers of our day that's begun to influence a lot of popular ideas is a man named Richard Rohr. You probably not have heard of him, but he's influenced a lot of spiritual teaching. And Richard Rohr teaches that Jesus is not the exclusive way to heaven, but that Jesus can actually be found in any religion and any worldview around the world. And that if you are just sincere in your faith, in whatever worldview you hold, that you will ultimately experience salvation. Jesus isn't exclusive. He's not the only way. And this sounds good to our world and our ears. Roar would say you could be a Buddhist monk, but as long as you are convicted in that, you can experience salvation. New spiritual birth. John would look at that teaching and he would say, no. If you've been born of God, your faith will be in Jesus. In his exclusive claim as the Son of God, as the Messiah, as the promised one. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by him. And what gives evidence of our spiritual rebirth is when we trust in Jesus and who he claims to be, not who we fashion him to be in our own imagination. But for John, the faith that we have in Jesus is a deep abiding trust. Sometimes I think when we talk about faith and the reality and idea that If we've been born of God, we have faith in Jesus. It's easy for us to think of faith simply as cognitive assent. That if I just kind of check the box, yeah, I believe in Jesus just as much as I believe in anything. 
And if you gave me a test, do you believe in Jesus, yes or no, I'd probably mark the yes box. But that's not the idea of faith that John is saying is evidence of our spiritual rebirth. For John, true saving faith is a faith that puts its trust and commitment in the life and work of Jesus for your salvation. It's casting yourself fully on him and saying, my trust is in him and him alone for my life and for what I need. If I stood on the edge of this stage and I asked you to catch me, and you said, yeah, I can, I can catch you, no problem. And I said, I believe you, but I just stood there. I could assent in my mind that I believe that you could catch me. But it wouldn't be until I actually jumped off the stage that I would have faith. You see, it's easy for us to say, yeah, I'm team Jesus. He gives me some perks in life. Not so bad. But that's not faith. Faith is when we trust our entire selves to him when we submit ourselves under his lordship as king of our lives, when we put our faith in his death to cover our sins, and we trust in his resurrection. That is the nature of faith. And John says, where that faith is present, we have been born again. Now, naturally, the question comes in that moment, whoa, 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 whoa. But what about when I struggle? Right? What about when I have doubt? Are you saying that, that if I... If I have doubts about Jesus, that, that I'm not born again, or I can't experience spiritual rebirth? No. Genuine faith is not opposed to doubt. It's opposed to disbelief, and there's a difference. You can have genuine faith and struggle with doubt at times. Doubt asks questions. Doubt wonders. Doubt explores. Doubt looks for answers in the midst of faith. If you came in this morning and you're struggling with the doubt and wondering about Christianity, good, welcome. You are welcome here. We want to walk with that, that journey alongside of you. Faith is not opposed to doubt. It's opposed to disbelief. Doubt asks the question. Disbelief makes the statement. Disbelief says Jesus is not the Son of God. Disbelief says Jesus is not the only Savior. Disbelief turns from Christ to look for other things in the world. You see, doubt, doubt can lead us to greater faith at times as we walk the journey and trust God's word. Disbelief leads us away from faith altogether and puts our trust solely in us or some other object in the world. But what John wants to remind us is that genuine faith, even where doubt is present, that focuses and puts its trust in Jesus shows that we have been born again. The reason it shows that it's been born again is because faith ultimately is the result of new birth. And I know I'm hammering this first point a little bit, but I think it's so important that if we're learning to love, we really get at the reality of what our faith is. Because our faith is ultimately the result of God's work in our hearts. You can actually see this a little bit in the text. And sometimes in our English translation, it obscures a bit of what John's trying to get at in the original language. But when John 
says everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ, the word that he uses, the verb he uses for believe is a present tense verb. It means a continuing action, that there's continual belief, right? There's this forward movement of belief. So he says everyone who believes that Jesus Christ has been born of God. When he talks about being born of God, he's looking back and using the perfect tense verb, which I know this is nerdy and geeky, but it's important. The perfect tense is an action that has happened in the past that is having continual effects on the present. And so what John is saying is if there is faith present in your heart and in your life, in Jesus, it's because at some point in the past, God gave you new birth and that new birth has resulted in faith. Your faith did not cause new birth. God caused you to be born again and because of that, you have faith. And the reason, friends, this is so important is because this is what gives us assurance in the midst of seasons of doubt. This is what allows us to stand confident in our salvation. Because if salvation is dependent on me, if it's dependent on my cognitive ability, my ability to trust God enough somehow to be born again, then you and I both know, and when I'm honest with myself, I don't have it in me for that sort of faith. But if faith is a work of God, if he's the one who saves and saves alone, then I can trust that what God started in my life, he will bring to completion. That even in the moments where I struggle and even in the moments that I doubt, God will continue to keep me in that faith and bring me and cause me to persevere to the end. And so John wants to remind us that the love that he's even calling us to is rooted in a work and act of God by which he saves us and brings spiritual birth into our lives. And the faith we have is evidence of the work that God has done. But there's a second thing, right? I'm only halfway through verse 1. You're like, oh my goodness, we're going to be here all morning. Don't worry. But John then says and gives us the second reason of how we can know we've been born of God. He says, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this, we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. So not only if you've been born of God do you have faith in Jesus, but if you've been born of God, you love God's children. John wants to draw the connection here between what God does in causing us to be born again to the love that we have then for others. In fact, if you were to give a real wooden translation of this verse and you were to connect kind of the ideas that he's trying to connect here that again is a little bit hard sometimes in the English to see because in our translations we try to make them readable. But you could translate this verse this way. You could say everyone who believes that Jesus in the, is the Christ, has been begotten by God, and everyone who loves the begetter loves also the one who's been begotten by him. Now, we don't use the word begotten a lot, but it's the idea of being born and causing to be born. And so John's idea is, listen, if you've been born of God, that's because God did that. He's the Father. He caused you to be born, and therefore you'll love those that he also begets, his other children. If you love the Father, you will love his kids. Now, I won't belabor this point too long because we've spent time already in the text encouraging and reminding ourselves that to love God is to love our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. 
Similarly, in my family, I have three children, two biological boys and an adopted daughter. And it would be ridiculous for them to say, I love you, Dad, but I don't really like your other kids. No, if you love me, you love the other children that I have. And essentially, it's the same point. We are called then to love one another. Even in my family, there's gender differences between my children. There's age differences. There's race differences between biological and adopted children. But they are still called to love one another. God's family, similar, is beautiful in its makeup. It's multi-ethnic, multicultural, multi-generational. And what we're reminded of is we're not to let those differences divide us, but that we're called to love as a family, to be one Where the world divides, Christ draws us together, and we're called to love one another. But John even goes further with this idea of loving God's children because he connects loving God's children with loving God and obeying his commandments. He says, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. See, if you love God, you love his children, but if you love his children, then you love God. And it feels a little bit circular for a minute, but what John is trying to drive at is I think he's trying to help us see how the new birth gives us this beautiful kind of expression of love. And he's pointing us a little bit towards some guardrails or some guides that help us to recognize what love really is as a result of new birth. If you ever go bowling and you set up the bumper rails right? They're to help you keep the ball in the middle of the lane so it's heading in the direction it's meant to go. I think what John's trying to do here is give us a little bit of the bumper rail so that we recognize how the new birth causes us to love in the right way. Because if we love out of the new birth, then we will have a balance between loving God and loving other people and not loving one of those at the exclusion of the other. In some ways, I think what John is pointing us to here is a love that guards us against moral relativism and religious legalism. You see, religious legalism is loving the rules over the relationship. It's loving doing all the right things. And that obedience is ultimately the ultimate mark of love. And some of us will affirm Darn right we better love God and obey his commandments. All you sinners better get your act together. See, that's religious legalism. It makes love about just following the rules. But the other thing John wants to guard us against is a moral relativism that emphasizes relationship over God's commands. That says, "Mm, right and wrong, that's a little bit wishy-washy. It just kind of depends on where relationships are. This is the love that our world has embraced. A love that lessens moral value. That diminishes God's word and his commands and calls in our lives. But what John wants to guard us against is to say, no, true love does not move towards one of these extremes or the other. True love loves God and his commands. We see them as good and right for our lives, but it also loves other people in such a way that the way that we engage with them is an invitation to a relationship with the God we serve. 
And genuine new birth calls us to live in this beautiful tension between the two. And it is a tension. If you seek to love this way, you will find the tension at times. Because you will engage people who go against God's commands. And you have to love God and say, no, I can't compromise on that. I can't give up the truth of God's word. But you will also engage those people with such a heart of love. Do you say, that doesn't mean I can't serve you? That doesn't mean I can't continue to pursue a friendship or relationship with you. That doesn't mean I can't continue to share the hope of Jesus and his kingdom with you. You see, when love is born out of new birth, it keeps us in this beautiful place of seeking to love God and love others, to obey the great commands that Jesus has given us. But it's not only that we just do this for others. We desire to follow these commands for ourselves. That's why he says in verse 3, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. Jesus says, if you love me, you'll obey me. But there's a second qualification, and his commandments are not burdensome. And you say, many people in our world say, well, how does that happen? Because it sure feels like some of God's commands are a burden. They sure sound like a killjoy sometimes. So how can it be to love God and keep his commandments and somehow these commands aren't burdensome? Well, John gives us how in his kind of final test for us. In verse 4 he says, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. You see, if we've been born of God You've overcome the world. That's why John uses this great connector in the little word for at the beginning of verse 4. How are God's commands not burdensome for us? Because if you've experienced spiritual birth, then you've overcome the world. You no longer desire it and its trappings and the things of it. You desire God and his way and his kingdom. You have new desires in your heart. Throughout this letter, John has challenged us to consider that the way of the kingdom is opposed to the way of the world. And those two things cannot intermingle. You cannot have Jesus in his way and have the world and its way. They're opposed to one another. This is why he says earlier in the letter in 1 John 2.15, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. You cannot desire the world and desire God. It is mutually exclusive. One leads away from the other. If you love God and desire him, you will naturally lessen in your desire for the things of the world. If you love the things of the world, you will naturally lessen in your love and desire for God. You see, our desires reveal our new birth because our desires reveal what we trust and what we treasure. It shows what our faith is actually in. Maybe you can think of it this way. Imagine that uh, you're a person who just loves fatty, greasy food. I don't have to imagine that too much, right? That's just me. Anyone else hands raised, right? No, you can keep them down. But just imagine, right? You've spent most of your life engaging in burgers and pizza and fries and 
wings and all the things that you love. But one day you go to the doctor and he runs a few tests and he, he comes in and he says, hey, listen, here's the thing. This food you love, it's actually killing you. Like your cholesterol's through the roof. I'm not sure how your arteries aren't clogged already. Like you gotta, you gotta dial it back. And so he says, Here, here's what I, I want to give you a recommendation, right? You need to shift to a diet of salad and veggies, lean meats, more water, less soda. Now, how you respond to the orders from the doctor over the next few days would begin to reveal what you actually value. Right? If, if you're like, no way, doc, I can't do that. Well, then you value the comfort of food than you do over a long and healthy life. But if you recognize that what you actually desire is health and life and goodness and those sorts of things, well, then those commands suddenly don't feel so burdensome. They feel like a way that you can rectify the situation that you're in. And that's essentially what God's commands become. They show what we value. When God's commands are burdensome, and that doesn't mean you don't struggle with them at times, but when you feel the weight of the burden constantly, it reveals what you actually value. Do you value the way of the world? Or do you value the way of the kingdom? You see, too many people want the world with a little bit of Jesus sprinkled in. I want what the world offers, and I'll just mix in Jesus a little bit. And I can kind of have both. But what John says is, no, you can't. Because genuine faith, genuine rebirth causes you to have a heart change. It causes you to realize that sin in the world can never satisfy the deepest longings of what your heart desires. That the only place of lasting joy and peace and love and faith is found in Jesus Christ and his way alone. And when you realize that, when your heart changes, when your desire changes, then you'll pursue those things over the things of the world. That's why he says what ultimately leads us to overcoming the world, it's our faith. It's our trust. And he brings us back to that place to show us this is what new birth is. In some ways, I feel like what he's doing here is he's playing a game of connect the dots. Right, you guys ever play connect the dots? I love connect the dots. You know, you like get the picture and then it has like all the numbers and you draw the lines and as you draw the lines, it connects and creates some bigger picture. I mean, I don't do that now, but you know, when I was a kid. <laughs> but in some ways, I think as John is calling us to this idea of new birth, he wants us to connect the dots to see that it's this work that God does in us. It's this process that God moves over time that shows that we've been born again. You see, for John, new birth results in faith. It results in a genuine faith in who Jesus is and what he has done. But that faith is ultimately connected with loving others. To have faith is to move towards loving those around us, especially those who are part of the household of faith. And that loving others is ultimately rooted and connected with our love for God, for desiring his ways over our ways. And if we love God, then we will slowly and over time overcome the things of the world to desire those things less and less. And as we do that, it leads us back and affirms our faith in Jesus as our actual Savior and hope. 
And so through all this, John's trying to draw these connections to say, listen, it's this new birth that makes you a child of God. It's the new birth that results in loving the way I'm calling you to love. It's this movement of these things that gives evidence to what God has done in your heart so that you can now learn to love the way he loved you. You see, if we're to love the way God desires for us to love, the way we've looked at it for the last five weeks, the starting point for that is the inside-out change that comes by being born again. And so John looks at us and he calls us in two ways. One, if you're here this morning and you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ, if you've never experienced that spiritual birth, if you take these ideals and you look at the pattern of your life and you say, man, I don't know if I see these things. But John's not asking you to be perfect. He's just asking, do you see this pattern? Do you see this evidence of God moving? If you don't see it, then the starting point is to put your faith in Jesus, to see who he is as the promised king, to see his death on your behalf, to see and trust in his resurrection from the dead. You start there, and as you do that, God moves in your life to begin to produce the evidence of new birth. And so if you're here this morning and you've never put your faith in Jesus, I want to invite you to do that. If you want to know what that looks like, if you're struggling with doubt, if you, if you want to understand how you can come to be born again, please, I'll be right here in this room after the service. I would love to talk to you. But if you have made that, if you have put your faith in trust in Jesus, then John wants you to be assured of that. He wants you to know that that's true of you because it's from that place of assurance that we then can love freely. You see, when you realize how much Jesus has done for you to cause you to be born again, it then frees you to go and serve others and show that love in your own life. So God wants to remind you, brothers and sisters, that if you have that new birth, you're his child. He loves you. In you, for you, between you, all the way around, God loves you. When you realize that, it frees you to live from a place of love that radically alters your life and the lives of others around you. Start with new birth and then see the amazing work God does from there. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you so much. that you would do this for us, God, is amazing. God, we recognize even in this moment, no no baby chooses to be born. It's the choice of the parents long before. And we recognize, God, that we were dead in our sins and our trespasses. We had turned so far away from you, there was no hope in life. But you, before the foundations of the world, you and your kindness, you looked down across eternity. And in Jesus Christ, you caused us to be born again. You did for us what we could never do for ourselves. And so in this moment, we stand and just say, thank you. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your salvation. God, I pray for anyone this morning who's struggling 
with doubt or who maybe has not experienced that new spiritual life that you promised. I pray right now in this moment that you would cause their eyes to be open to see the truth of Jesus and all he is as Savior and Lord and to put their faith in him. God, for those of us that have put our faith in Christ, would you assure us even now, Holy Spirit, of your great love. Would you assure us that we are your children so that we might be free to love the way you have called us to. Jesus, we're so thankful for you. We pray all these things in your holy and precious name. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.